Bitcoin is a rabbit hole where the more you learn about it, the more you learn that you need to learn about other subjects. I find all the time that as people start studying Bitcoin, they end up reading books about banking and the financial system and the history of money and, and all kinds of other subjects. And uh, to make sense of why Bitcoin is necessary or how it's better than the financial system we have now, you need to start to have a broader understanding of the current state of things and, and some knowledge of how we got here. And so if you're new to Bitcoin and you're rounding out your knowledge of financial markets, this episode is really going to help. In this episode, we're talking about a financial activity that's called carry, which you may never heard of, but it's something that happens all over the world. It's deeply ingrained in the financial system. And it's a practice that is becoming used more and more all the time. You're listening to The Block Reward, and this is a show where we help you understand Bitcoin without having to be obsessed with it. I'm Scott Deedles. I'm the founder and CEO of Block Rewards. And part of our mission in bringing Bitcoin to the workplace is helping people understand how it will help them. So if you're ready to hear about Kerry and its role in global markets, then stick around. We're about to get into it. All right, welcome to another episode of the Block Reward Podcast. I am thrilled to introduce our guest today, Kevin Coldiron. Kevin is a lecturer in the financial engineering program at UC Berkeley's Haas Business School and the host of the Ideas Lab podcast series on the Top Traders Unplugged platform. Prior to joining the Haas faculty, he co-founded Algert Coldiron Investors, ACI, a San Francisco-based quantitative hedge fund. He previously headed the hedge fund business at Barclays Global Investors in London and has also worked as a currency market analyst at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Kevin has an MBA from London Business School and a BSc in finance from the Pennsylvania State University. He has been featured on top podcasts such as Bloomberg's Odd Lots and Hidden Forces. He publishes a one-page newsletter called The Ideas Lab, New Ways to Understand Global Markets, which summarizes his writings, interviews, and research. His regular articles for Forbes can be found at Kevin Coldiron's Forum Articles. Kevin is co-author with Tim and Jamie Lee of The Rise of Kerry, which was the top-selling investment book on Amazon and awarded the 2020 Globy for Globalization Book of the Year. The Rise of Kerry is a book that I read recently, and it's the reason why I wanted to have Kevin on the show today. Understanding uh, what Kerry is has been instrumental for me in rounding out my understanding of the global financial markets. And I think that this book really shines a light on a number of the problems that Bitcoiners are very interested in. So I view this book, Rise of Carry, as potentially a, a very important book for people who are studying Bitcoin with all levels of background in uh, sort of understanding traditional finance. Uh, he's a great speaker. We had an awesome conversation and um, a lot of really, really awesome uh, insights from uh, from the book and and some of his other writings. So uh, I hope you enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Block Reward Podcast. We are joined this week by Kevin Coldiron. Welcome, Kevin. It's great to be here. Thanks, Scott. We're going to have a conversation today uh, about the book that Kevin's co-author that's called Rise of Carry. And it's a book that I feel has a lot of relevance for Bitcoiners as they start to set out and have a deeper understanding of all these complex mechanisms in the global financial system that are impacting the problems that Bitcoiners sort of study more with a with sort of laser-pointed focus. And I learned a lot from reading your book, so much that I read it twice. And so I, I wanted to sort of expose our listeners to some of those ideas. And I, and I think that Bitcoiners in general have a, have a lot to gain from a better understanding of the content in your book. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think that's right. I mean, we don't 
talk a lot about Bitcoin specifically in the book, although we do mention it um, at the end. But it is, you know, the, the book describes how the financial system has changed in the last 30 or 40 years and why that change is, is uh, not sustainable, in other words, or why the current system is not sustainable. And we predict that, you know, there's going to be significant structural changes in the monetary system going forward, um, which are already starting to happen. So I think that's the sort of thing that uh, Bitcoiners are are interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of parallel overlap in the kinds of, uh, like I said, in the problems. And uh, yeah, very interested to talk to you a little bit more about this idea of where, where it goes a little bit later on in the conversation. Maybe just to get our to get the conversation started, can you just tell us a little bit about about what carry is and, and what are the what are the requirements in a in carry activity or in a carry trade? Yeah, a carry trade has been carry trades have been around for a very long time, and in some sense, carry as a concept is is fundamental to financial markets. But the way I I typically describe it is, it's a trade that makes money if nothing happens. And it's a trade that's that's essentially a bet on stability. And if you want to take that a step further, you could say it's a trade that is a bet on low or falling volatility. So the classic carry trade, the one I think most of us are, are familiar with, takes place in the currency markets, right? Where you might borrow money in a low interest rate currency, let's say the Japanese yen. So let's say you pay you know 1% to borrow Japanese yen. And you take those yen and you convert it to another currency that has higher interest rates. So let's say it's Brazil. So you borrow yen at 1%, convert that to Brazilian currency and deposit that in a bank in Brazil and you earn 10%. So that difference between the Brazilian interest rate, 10%, and the Japanese interest rate, 1%, is the carry. That's the yield you make if nothing happens. And in this case, nothing happening means the exchange rate staying the same. So if the exchange rate stays the same, you earn that 9% interest rate spread um, as a profit. But of course, if the exchange rate does change, in particular, if the Brazilian currency depreciates, then you can lose money very quickly. So it's a, it's a levered trade, right? Carry, in our view, always involves borrowing money. It's a liquidity-providing trade so you're taking money from where it's abundant. That's why interest rates in Japan are so uh, low. And you channel it to where um, liquidity is scarce, Brazil. That's why you get paid a higher interest rate. It's a short volatility trade because if the world stays the same, if, if volatility stays muted, you make money. When volatility increases, typically liquidity-providing trades lose money. So um, if volatility increases, the exchange rate can depreciate and you can lose money. And it has a very typical profit and loss pattern. Most of the time, carry trades are profitable. So most of the time, in my example, you're earning that interest rate spread. But once in a while, you're subject to big drawdowns. And essentially, the thesis in our book is that carry trades have gone from being this kind of niche strategy that used to exist mainly in the currency and commodity markets to one that we see everywhere around the world. And that means that the characteristics of carry trades, in particular, um, this tendency to have occasionally very large drawdowns, now characterizes the entire global economy. 
because carriage trees are so prevalent everywhere. Yeah, I think you mentioned something that that is important is that the, the origins of a carry trade. There's a beneficial function to having uh, the, this additional li- liquidity mechanism in the marketplace. So it's not like it's a totally vaporous and useless thing. No, and, and, and that's important. And I think a lot of people, well, not necessarily a lot of people, some people have interpreted our book in like, hey, carry is bad. No, it's not. Because let's think about banks or insurance companies. They're essentially providers of carry, right? So you think about someone who's selling insurance, okay? Well, what's the, what's the profit profile of a, someone who's selling insurance? Well, most of the time they make money, right? They collect their insurance premium. And once in a while, they have to make a big payout. So, you know, if you're writing, in, you know, ins- house insurance, most of the time people's houses don't burn down. So every month you collect your, your uh, premium, and but once in a while something bad happens and you have to make a payout. That's clearly got this what we call um, you know escalator up, elevator down profit profile, right? Most of the time you make money, occasionally big drawdowns. It's clearly short volatility, right? If the world stays the same, if nothing happens, insurance providers make money. Um, it's liquidity providing, and that's not quite as obvious to people, but it's liquidity providing because as an insurance buyer, right, you bought insurance on your house. What does that mean? That, that means that you can free up cash to do other stuff. If you couldn't buy insurance, right, if you couldn't insure against certain risks, what would you do? You'd have to keep a lot more cash stuffed under your mattress in case something bad happened. But because you've been able to buy an insurance contract, you've hedged against certain risks, that frees up you, your liquidity to do other things with. So it's liquidity providing, and it's also a leveraged position. Again, that's not quite as obvious, but what the insurance company is doing is saying, hey, if something bad happens to your house, I'm going to use my balance sheet to you know, help you rebuild a new house, right? So there, it's a contingent liability for the insurance company. Um, so their balance sheet is, you know, that m- might not always get reflected in kind of typical measures of debt, but it definitely is a debt. They have a liability that they have to pay to you. So my, my point in that explanation is that insurance is, um, selling insurance is providing carry. And that's, you know, at some level, insurance is good for, for everyone. It makes it, makes the world more efficient. Banking is also a carry provision activity. Uh, banks borrow at low interest rates and lend at high interest rates. They provide liquidity. They're short volatility. So banking insurance make financial markets work and they're providers of carry. Our thesis is simply that when there's too much carry, when there's too much selling of volatility, when there's too much provision of liquidity, we the markets become fragile and more prone to crashes. And that's kind of the system we think we're in now. Yeah. I, and, th- and this is what I was fascinated about reading your book because there's sort of the basics of understanding carry and the prevalence of carry. And when you've got to that point, then you can sort of start to think about what the proliferation of this incentive mechanism has done and, and what it might do. And so there's a few different aspects of those consequences that maybe we could just talk a little bit about. And, and one of them is sort of this idea that carry promotes uh, debt and unproductive investment. Right. Well, let's think about that. I mean, the idea behind the bank, right, is that they take deposits 
at low interest rates and they channel them into loans at higher interest rates. And those, you know, if, if you pick up a, a textbook, you know, the, those loans are supposed to be to businesses to, to make um, productive investments. But as Carrie has grown, what's happened is that we see a lot more just kind of pure speculation, right? Pure borrowing money and just looking for the highest yielding asset and encouraging, you know, I guess, liquidity flows that aren't related to productive investment. So, you know, a big, a big kind of new source of carry is real estate, right? So people buy, you know, buy uh, flats or apartments with low yielding mortgages and then, you know, buy properties that they can rent out. Um, at, as long as that yield on their rental income is higher than what they're paying on their debt, um, that's a positive carry trade. Um, and that's not really investment in productive economic activities. That's just, that's just pure rent seeking. And we see that in financial markets as well. I think private equity is probably the biggest example of that where, you know, really what's what at, at the now, I'm not talking about individual deals. I'm talking to like you kind of aggregate what private equity is doing across the economy. They're, they're looking for businesses where the underlying cash flow yield is higher than what they can borrow. So when they see that, then they, they simply go in, use debt to uh, buy the company, leverage up the balance sheet, and oftentimes use the dividends to pay themselves back. So they're they're not looking to grow businesses in aggregate they're just looking to they're looking to extract uh, you know to leverage leverage up the balance sheet and, and, and extract income so that type of carry isn't uh, it, it, and you could argue that by leveraging up the balance sheet they'd make those businesses more fragile right more likely to uh, go under if some type of volatility event happens so it's not increasing the productive capacity of the economy it's just making it more fragile it's interesting you sort of to smush those two examples you put together into one because there is kind of a debate happening right now about whether or not institutional money should be able to own residential real estate at all because of this. Uh, it, it's sort of like becoming the quintessential uh, non-productive investment. Yeah, I mean, that probably veers a little off the, you know, in terms of whether or not they should be allowed to uh, or not. Personally, I'm, I'm not sure it's it's a great idea for our society to have, you know, big kind of nameless funds investing in, in residential real estate. But that that's kind of more of a, I think, a, almost like a political question <laughs> rather mm-hmm. than, yeah, the, totally. than an economic question. So, so then at, sort of at the crux of it is this, the proliferation of investment that centers around the volatility being minimized creates an environment where the volatility either needs to stay minimized or there's one of these negative events that leaves the gamblers out. And then, so basically that can have two outcomes. Central banks can either, or we can sort of, uh, central banks, we could either socialize the losses in the event of a downturn or it succeeds forever and more and more people start making this trade. Is that fair yeah, to say? Yeah, and that you've hit on, you know, a very, very important kind of key key theme because our, our thesis is carry trades have gone, grown from a kind of a niche trade, as I said, in the currency markets to something we see everywhere. Well, why has that happened? You know, <laughs> why, you know, what, what's allowed that to happen? A part of it is increasing connection of global markets, right? So it's much easier now to 
borrow money and you know channel that to a higher interest earning investment anywhere pardon me around the world so there's integration of financial markets but the most important driver has been the behavior of central banks so let's let's look back and you know we can argue whether it started in 1987 i think it's clear um that it was accelerated in 1990 1998 what happened in 1998 was long term capital management which was the gold standard of hedge funds at that time i'm, I'm not sure how old you are scott you look a bit younger than me but you know to me as someone kind of you know edging towards 60 now i would you know ltcm was this kind of mythical hedge fund at the time in the um, mid and late 90s there really isn't anything like it now maybe renaissance and they had the you know the smartest minds in the world and they seem to have a you know a money machine where every month they're churning out positive results well what they were doing really was just building a a very large book of carry trades so a very large book of highly levered you know kind of carrying yield spread trades and so the classic profit pattern is you make money most of the time, but once in a while you have a big blow up. And when the Asian currency crisis happened in 1997, which spilled over into the Russian default in 1998, volatility exploded and LTCM, you know, went bankrupt very, very quickly because they had a hugely leveraged balance sheet. Volatility increased. They were short volatility because they lost money. You know, what in seemingly independent trades basically turned out to all have the same risk factor was being short volatility. So how did central banks respond? Well, they did not intervene directly to bail out LTCM, but they gathered all the most important lenders to LCM together and said, you need to make sure, you know, this doesn't spread. So it was kind of a, they, they encouraged a private bailout, but they supported that by lowering interest rates quite quickly. So um, what that meant was that the full impact of, the drawdown in the carry, you know, what should have been the drawdown in the LTCM carry trades, not just at LTCM, but carry trade, similar trades that had been put on by banks around the world wasn't felt. So if you think about like a PL chart, right, you've got the extreme left hand side of the distribution, your big losses. Well, we didn't experience the full left hand side of that distribution. We didn't experience all the big drawdowns. So some people who were running carry books that should have been wiped out were not wiped out. And that sense that the authorities were not going to let a carry crash spread encourages more people to do carry trades. And then if, you know, if you're someone who in the early 2000s is doing a back test of a carry trade, well, those, those big negative drawdowns that should have been in the data are not in the data, right? Because they didn't happen because of central banks organized the private bailout and lowered interest rates. So that encouraged more people to do carry trades in different markets. And then that built up to the point where in 2008, the drawdowns were so extreme that central banks were forced to actually intervene directly and bail out the markets via quantitative easing. And that, again, in doing so, and, you know, each time you could say, well, they, hey, we can't burn, we can't let the house burn down. We can't let the system, you know, completely evaporate. So central banks sort of justified their intervention in each crisis by saying we have to save the system. But the unintended consequence of that 
was people who should have been wiped out in 2008 weren't wiped out. Um, that encouraged still more carry trading. So, you know, then when subsequently 2020 happened, the level and scale of central bank intervention had to be even bigger. And so I guess what we talk about in the book is the interaction between the growth of carry, its characteristics being short volatility, and central banks intervening to suppress volatility when it rises. All those three things kind of mixed together in a feedback loop that encourages carry trading to grow and grow and grow. Um, and that makes the system less stable, more fragile. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's like you mentioned 2008, and, and I'm, as I was reading the book, I was thinking a lot about the scene in The Big Short where they have realized what's going on with some subprime, subprime mortgage lending and like how this incentive mechanism has led to uh, riskier and riskier lending. And, it, it, you know, they're very similar ideas. Uh, it's like it's the same sort of aha moment, because, you know, as you mentioned, we, we flash forward now to 2020. We have this really unprecedented amount of debt and leverage accumulating in the system parallel to this uh, proliferation of carry positions. And so where does this go? And before you answer that, or try to answer that, I just want to make, clarify my previous answer. If we think about LTCM, the level of intervention, what happened there? Did central banks bail out LTCM directly? No. They organized a private bailout. They lowered interest rates. In 2008, um, central banks lowered interest rates and intervened directly by buying mortgage bonds and government bonds. In 2020, central banks lowered interest rates. They bought mortgage bonds. They bought government bonds. They bought corporate bonds. And in some cases, Japan and Switzerland, they bought equities. So you see a pattern of each intervention has to get bigger in scale and wider in scope, right? And eventually, what, you know, it's like what asset isn't protected. So the markets, I kind of think of markets is a bit like teenagers. They're always testing boundaries. You know, so if you, if you ever, if you have teenagers and you set a boundary, you can be darn sure that they're going to bounce up against it and see if you're serious or not. And I think markets are very similar in that you can say, okay, well, we're only going to buy government bonds. We won't support corporate bonds. And then markets will be like, okay, let's see how serious you are about it. <laughs> you know, so I think that if, you, if, if logically at some point the markets are going to ask the question of whether or not the, the central bank support, uh, the, the Fed supports it in the equity market. And I think the answer in our current path would have to be, they'll have to say yes, right? We'll see. We, I, you know, obviously I could be, could be wrong about that, but in terms of, of where we go, you know, I guess our view is that we'll, you know, we'll have to see a, um, probably have to see a, a, a carry drawdown on a scale that's bigger than what we saw in 2020 at some point that, that, that tests whether or not the Fed is, is the Fed put is really there for the equity market. Um, and then they'll, they'll have to decide. And, um, if, it turns out that the Fed put is not there, that they're not willing to support equities, then it would, you know, potentially result in the Fed kind of losing credibility and losing control uh, from the from the point of view of the market. And, you know, we're in a situation where, you know, central bank intervention in 2008 and 2020 was, I don't want to say easy, but from a macro perspective, it was because inflation was not a problem, right? If inflation is zero, 
and you flood the market with liquidity to support or to, to suppress volatility, keep volatility lower. That's kind of at least consistent with your goal for mo- money supply, which is to uh, monetary policy, which is to make sure we don't have deflation. So in 2008, 2020, the overriding concern was deflation. Now, what's the overriding concern? It's inflation. We have, you know, inflation still um, above target. So if you had a crash now, right, um, like say Silicon Valley Bank, if that had spread, then you have a situation where the central bank to stop the financial crisis, to stop volatility from rising, to deal with the carry crash, they have to flood the market with liquidity. But flooding the market with liquidity at a time when inflation is falling is that's contradictory, right? That, that, that's kind of like you're trying to do two opposite things at one time. And that becomes, in my mind, a real, a real challenge for the Fed to maintain its credibility in that world. And, you know, we've seen two tests of it already. We've seen the British pension blow up um, in the fall of 2022 where the Bank of England had to intervene to basically do quantitative easing at a, t- at a time when it was trying to lower inflation. And we saw the Fed open up a new lending facility to banks in the spring of 2023 when Silicon Valley Bank um, went down. And in both cases, you, you know, people could say, well, okay, the Fed was, the, the central banks were successful, right? The, the market believed that the intervention they were doing was to deal with the temporary liquidity issue. And they weren't worried that it was going to increase the long-term prospects of inflation. But had any of those events been, you know, kind of bigger and lasted longer, then we could, could have been in a different situation. So I think that's the, that's the risk now. I think that's the, that's the event that will play out, you know, in the next couple of years is a test of whether or not central bank liquidity to support a carry crash is is inconsistent with the goal of getting inflation down. Yeah, you mentioned an, another sort of offshoot of of carry is kind of uh it promotes the moneyness of other things. And so th- uh, yeah, maybe we could just talk a little bit about That's an important very important concept, right? So again, think about the characteristics of carry trade. One of them is it's always liquidity providing, right? So it's carry is growing across financial markets, liquidity is increasing. What, what is liquidity? Well, liquidity typically in, it, at a macro level, it means you can get access to credit. So if you want to borrow money, you can, you can borrow money easily at low interest rates. At a micro level, it means you can sell assets really quickly with not much price impact. So both things are really about getting access to cash. In one case, it's access to longer term cash and another, case, it's access to short-term cash by selling an asset. So in highly liquid markets, the range of assets that can be sold and bought very quickly with low price impact increases, right? Liquid markets, you can buy and sell stuff really easily. So, you know, in the kind of pre-2020 world with low interest rates, what, what, what happens is that people would Instead of holding cash in the bank, you would hold, you know, a corporate bond ETF because that was not quite like money. You couldn't use it to settle a transaction. But if you had a big transaction, you could easily convert your ETF into cash. And um, so people started holding a range of assets as money substitutes because they knew they could convert them to cash very easily. Markets were liquid and those assets provided a higher yield. 
So as, as, as in a world with lots of carry, we start seeing people hold different assets as, you know, money substitutes. So the moneyness of a variety of assets increases. And that, what that means is that when volatility eventually does spike, when we have some type of crisis, the moneyness of those assets disappears very quickly because liquidity contracts. And so then everyone wants back into central bank money. And so you see this, you know, what people call a dash for cash. Well, what we're explaining in the book is the mechanism behind that, why that happens. It's because the other things that you were holding as liquidity substitutes, all of a sudden you're like, oh, shoot, <laughs> they're no good anymore. And, and so central, you know, you have this kind of very, very quick and sharp contraction in liquidity. Everyone wants to hold central bank cash and markets can't can't support that. And then central banks are forced to intervene. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's a huge concept. And I'm, I'm fascinated by sort of a sub aspect of it, of what, what, how it relates to what's going on with global markets, because as these central bank balance sheets have grown, each country is ma- sort of managing their own little fire, but, but they're all te- tethered to the Fed. And you know, I, this is, I'm in Canada, so we're experiencing our own version of that. You started by mentioning the example of the yen carry, which is actually the example where I which led me to your book in the first place, because the yen carry trade is one that comes up in Bitcoin circles a lot. And the Bank of Japan is in a really precarious position, sort of defending the yen as, I guess, a heavily carried currency. Would that be the right way to phrase it? Or could could you maybe talk a little bit about the the interconnectedness of of the different central banks and and how that all contributes at a a sort of more global level? Well, again, pre-2022, when dollar interest rates were so low, you had a lot of borrowing, both short and long term, in dollars from uh, non US non US entities. Either um, borrowing in dollars to, let's say, you know, the example we use in the book is Turkey, because Turkey is kind of this, you know, has been a carry trade recipient currency for many years. So if you were, you know, if interest rates in Turkey are ten percent, right, and you're a company in Turkey and you have you know, a range of projects you'd like to pursue, you look at borrowing to finance that and you say, well, at 10%, I can't really make that work, right? It's not profitable for me. But if I can borrow in dollars at 3% or 4% and convert that into Turkish currency, then all of a sudden there's a range of, of activities that become profitable. So if you can borrow at 3%, there's a lot of stuff you can do to make money that you couldn't if you had to pay 10 or 15%, if you had to pay local interest rates. So you have carry trades going on in Turkey, uh, in China, a lot of currencies, uh, countries, um, which historically had higher interest rates, long-term interest rates in the U.S., and that supports, you know, kind of macroeconomic growth in those countries, but it introduces currency risk, right? Because you're, you know, presumably if you're a Turkish company, if you're a Chinese company, borrowing your, sorry, your income is in local currency, but your liabilities in dollars, right? So there's a, there's a mismatch there. So when the U.S. raises interest rates, all of a sudden, um, you know, your liabilities go up and liquidity and economic activity contracts. We're seeing a lot of that in China right now, right? I mean, China, the, China was a big carry trade recipient. And with U.S. interest rates gone up, that squeezes people who borrowed in dollars. We also see the same thing short term where um, people, you know, banks outside the U.S. will want 
dollar deposits. So they'll, they'll want a dollar deposit with a bank in Europe somewhere. Well, and that bank will give them the dollar deposit. They don't have access to the Fed, right? And in case there's a run on their deposits, they need to generate dollars. Um, they can't borrow it from the Fed. So what the Fed has had to do in a crisis is lend money to central banks like Europe, like like in England, in Japan. And then those central banks lend the dollars on to their um, their own banks to, um, <clears throat> to back them up. So that's what's called uh, currency swaps. So the Fed does these currency swaps where it lends money. It doesn't lend money to a European bank, technically, but effectively that's what's happening. The Fed's really become the central bank to the world, channeling that lending through a network of kind of approved central banks that has grown significantly with each crisis, the, you know, the, the potential recipients of dollar swaps goes up. So in that way, the Fed has really become the, you know, the center for supporting, you know, global carry trades um, outside the U.S. Now, some would argue that, you know, from a geopolitical point of view, you could say, well, that's like enhancing the U.S. dollar status and power, which Again, probably takes us off topic. We don't really talk about that power dynamic so much in the book, but without question, it definitely supports the growth of of a dollar carry trades. So that means when dollar interest rates go up, um, you have a kind of collapse or reduction in those sort of carry trades, and that creates a um, a liquidity squeeze. And I, I think you know, so for for people in countries outside of the U.S., this really frames of why. It's so important what's happening with the Fed balance sheet and interest rates inside the U.S. So the United States is in its own specific position with sort of uh, the rising cost of servicing federal debt and uh, the, the sort of compounding accumulation of that amount. And the decisions that that uh, the Fed makes on how to proceed are going to ripple out and uh, and have local impacts with every sort of liquidity trade partner, Japan, wherever. Yeah. And just, you know, going back to your question about the Japanese uh, carry trade. So it's kind of gone through different phases. Um, initially, if you think about Japan was the first, you know, w- went through a big financial crash and they were the first country, you know, um, modern country to introduce quantitative easing. And so they lowered interest rates. They did QE in the early 1990s. And so Japan became kind of the initial source for um, global currency carry trades because their interest rates were so low. And that kind of changed after the 2008 crisis when U.S. interest rates became kind of as low as Japanese rates. So the funding of carry trades switched from being yen-based to dollar-based, which was important because the dollar markets are much bigger. And so the, the scale of the, of the global carry trade could increase with dollar funding. Now we're kind of back to where we were before with U.S. interest rates rising. It's no longer that profitable to borrow in dollars and, you know, and do a carry trade because U.S. short-term interest rates are 5%, but Japanese interest rates, short-term interest rates are still very low. So we've seen a reemergence of the yen carry trade. And what's that meant for Japan? Well, it's meant that there's a lot of people shorting the yen, which is why the yen has reached multi-decade lows. Um, And in some ways, that's made the Japanese central bank's life a little easier because they've been trying to generate inflation for a long time. So 
depreciating currency <laughs> helps with that, but uh, they they don't want the currency in in free fall, and so they're faced with a conundrum of Japanese inflation is now as high as it's been in forty years, and in part because the currency has fallen, and and that's because they've kept interest short term interest rates so low, so they are probably under pressure now to start not necessarily matching the U.S. short-term interest rate, but at least increasing it somewhat, um, which would you know, potentially destabilize some of these yen-funded yen carry trades. So there, there's this kind of interesting symbiosis between uh, carry trades and central banks as they sort of, as the intervention to squish the volatility becomes more necessary, the roles of the central banks expand which, which it's like a chicken and the egg. So which comes first? Is it, is this a result of central bank interference or is it, is it required of it? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting philosophical, I mean, it's more than a philosophical question, it's an economic question too. So the way I think of it, um, is that carry some level of carry is, as we've talked about, required for financial markets to work effectively. And going back to our bank and our insurance example. So I think, you know, when we, when you, if you think about the world in the early 1970s, that, that was a world where it wasn't easy to do carry trades anywhere. The world markets weren't connected. Capital flows were restricted. As the world has become more interconnected, as it's become easier to do these trades, um, the, it's, it's natural that, that there's going to be people pushing the, the envelope that carry is going to expand kind of beyond whatever its correct level is, which means that I think the origin is just in the, you know, kind of animal spirits, speculative nature of markets, that there's going to be too much carry and that means there's going to be a crash. So then it comes down to how the authorities choose to react. And once they've chosen to react in a way that suppresses volatility, that truncates losses for some carry traders, then that's going to encourage more more carry trades in bigger size and scale the next time. So I think going back to your original questions, I think the origins are probably in markets and that the feedback loop be starts with how the authorities react. And then that kicks back into then how markets react to the central bank intervention. So I, I don't think it's you know, the central bank's kind of fault, quote unquote, I think it's how they've chosen to react each subsequent period. And now they've kind of let the genie out of the bottle. So it's, it's hard to imagine how we get to a more stable world without significant kind of almost a rework of the, of the system. That's why we conclude the book by saying that there's going to be big changes to how the monetary system operates because they can't go back and say, okay, all right, <laughs> we're done intervening to support the markets. They can't do it. It's too much money at stake now. People expect it and um, they, they can't back off from that. So they'll almost, I think, have to be a complete reset, which, you know, I think that's kind of what Bitcoiners have been arguing for, um, for a long time. And whether or not that's, that's the way it goes, I, I'm not sure. But I, I don't see how we can get to a stable monetary system with our current situation. Yeah, I, I want to come to that Bitcoin piece in a second, but I, I do have one more question about that. And so it, it's kind of just to, just to really like hammer it out for the listeners. As the carry grows, the need for 
central bank inter- intervention grows, it's like we're on this. We can't go to infinity with the power of central banks, uh, particularly the Fed, right? And you mentioned that you know we'll see what happens if the Fed supports the stock market eventually at, at some point in, in an event. And I guess is that kind of the end stage where where the Fed has really subsumed uh, the 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 entire financial system. Or- I mean, I, that's the logical extension of what we're saying. I think we we tend to focus a little bit more on inflation because if you think about um, Fed intervention as you know basically supporting liquidity and that's inflationary, that ultimately the the markers are if inflation becomes you know high you know it's sustained at a high level and volatility doesn't fall when the fed intervenes those two things are kind of interlinked because you could kind of think about you know volatility and inflation being very closely tied together if we have very high inflation that means that there's very little confidence in the underlying currency that supports you know the economy and that by definition means you know there's a heck of a lot of uncertainty which means higher volatility so those two things are tied together so um going back to what you said is the intervention to support the stock market the final end game well it it very well could be but only in its impact on inflation and volatility so if, if somehow, you know, Fed, I, I would suspect that if the Fed intervened to support the stock market, that the initial reaction would be for volatility to fall because the Fed's making good on, on its kind of quote unquote put. But then going back to our teenager example, I would expect the market to continually test the Fed. And at some point, the economic effects of flooding the market with liquidity would, would lead to, you know, inflation and, and volatility. I'm saying, being being higher uh, for for longer, and then you know the, then the Fed really kind of has lost uh, has lost control of, of the economy. So that, that that's kind of how the how we would see the you know the the end game uh, playing out. So both both these things, central banking and carry trades, ha- have legitimate origins and were were key drivers sort of in the uh, the evolution of the global economy over the twentieth century. Argentina is in this position now where there's discussion about them potentially ending their central bank is central banking uh feasible uh, as a long-term solution it's a you know i'm wrestling with this because we're we're writing it we're trying to write a follow-up book in the early stages and, and we wanted to kind of think because in the, in the rise of carry i think we 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 spent a lot of time kind of describing how the world is and how we got to that stage and we don't really spend much time saying okay what should happen next we're trying to think in the second book about what should happen next and you know, the honest answer is I'm not quite sure, but I had been going, I spent a lot of time going back and thinking about, you know, because we didn't always have a central bank in the U.S. We only started in 1913, I believe. And why did it start? Well, it started because, I mean, you know, we would have these, you know, financial crashes. And, uh, you know, really, in the end, we, we kind of had a private central bank, which was J.P. Morgan, which would you know, in a crash, get together and say, okay, these banks are good. You can lend to them. These banks aren't good and they're going to go down. And that didn't seem to be a great way to manage the economy. Uh, so we organized a central bank, a government-sponsored bank that could provide a, you know, that can lend to institutions that 
seemingly were solvent, but they were just suffering a liquidity crisis. But that, that actually, that, you know, the Fed started in 1913, that didn't stop financial crises. It, that really only happened in the 1930s when we finally had, you know, deposit insurance because we still had bank runs in the Great Depression. So we needed deposit insurance for people to feel like they didn't need to just, you know, get out of fiat currency and into gold um, every time there was a crisis. And that, that kind of system of deposit insurance plus lender of last resort kind of worked up until, you know, you know, whether it was 1998 or 2008, up until, you know, the, the financial system evolved from one that was primarily bank-based to one that's where credit is now more kind of um, goes through, through the markets. And so, you know, going to your question is, do we need a central bank? And if so, what does that structure look like in the modern world? I guess I'm still undecided. My, I, I feel like we probably do need some type of, some type of lender of last resort. But how do you structure a lender of last resort that doesn't just reinitiate the process I've just talked about? Right, this ratchet effect where each intervention encourages more carry, which encourages bigger intervention. You know, we could do a reset with a new central bank and a new set of rules. How do we stop that ratchet process from starting again? And I, you know, that's what I'm wrestling with. And I'm trying to think of what's the kind of simplest, least, you know, kind of least interventionist effect that would still provide some sort of, you know, some sort of cushion to the, you know, to when emotion overrides, overrides um, reason. You know, I, I, I think a lot about, Scott, about this quote that, and I, I probably won't get the quote exactly right, but it was by Howard Marks in 2020. And, you know, Howard Marks is, um, you know, a, a very well-known, a very successful investor. And he, he said that, you know, we had money lined up ready to to buy these assets at distressed prices in 2020. And we never got a chance to do it because the Fed intervened and markets stabilized above levels that, you know, that we were ready to come in at. In other words, private capital was there. It was organized. It was ready to buy distressed bonds, to buy distressed loans, to buy equities. But, you know, because there's uncertainty in that, they wanted to see a discount to fair value that was sufficient enough to ensure their own risk. But my point is, there, the pro, it's not like there weren't some people ready to step in and, and buy these assets, but the Fed was coming in at, at a higher level, and so those, those private actors never, never materialized. So I think a, a libertarian or a free market person, a pure free market person would say, hey, we don't need central banks. There are the Howard Marxes of the world. They will step in at some point. So part of me thinks, you know, if the Fed, if central banks are, are going to exist and are going to provide insurance, that's a public good. Um, the public ought to participate in the profits of that. So, you know, perhaps there's a, there's a mechanism where, you know, private actors could access the Fed's balance sheet when prices reach a point where the, you know they feel like they can make profits, and then the and then the Fed or I.e. the government, I.e. <laughs> citizens participate in, in that profit, because right now 
the Fed is providing insurance to markets, but most of the benefit of that insurance is not going to, you know, to the citizens of the United States. It's going to private carry traders. So you, you can see I don't have a clear answer, but I'm kind of wrestling with these these questions, and it's it's a tricky one. But I think it's one that we're, we as society are going to have to answer. From a Bitcoiner perspective, the the my thought is that it would be impossible to avoid a return to those previous mechanisms as long as any one bank has the authority to create money out of thin air. So the answer is a money that no one can uh, affect the, the rate of inflation. And, and this, kind of, this kind of what Bitcoin offers, right, is a, a predictable uh, schedule of issuance and, uh, and a transparently auditable, verifiable amount of money uh, that's infinitely divisible. So there's simply enough money to create liquidity uh, and the, and the, this sort of fixed set of rules removes the need for a central authority to even exist because everyone can agree on the on the rules, and so there, there's no need to have a guarantor of those rules. I love your example of the teenagers because I, I I think that just generally speaking, like you know, average market participants, general like the people you meet in your lives, and I don't think it matters where you are if you're in the West. Like people have a general sense that governments won't let this thing blow up. And so like, I think people can be cautious, but generally speaking, when I talk to people about buying houses or stocks or whatever, the feeling is, is like, we're going to resume going up. And it's just because we've all been conditioned to not be afraid of, uh, like the, there is no catastrophic fear of, uh, the kind of end game event that you're talking about. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. There's definitely a generational thing. Like I can't quite get my head around that. So actually, personally, it hasn't been great time for me since 2008 because I, you know, I grew up in a world where central, you know, the quantitative easing didn't exist, you know, so I, I have this fear that markets could have a drawdown and I saw the drawdown that we had in 2001 uh, in the U S or 2002, you know, it was like 50% plus I've seen crashes in the 1970s. I saw the 1987 stock market crash. So, um, I still haven't, you know, it's it's hard for me to trust this don't fight the Fed thing. But clearly that's been the right trade since 2008. So now we're talking 15 years. So um, I, I absolutely agree that um, that people, you know, just generally think, well, you know, yeah, markets might fall by 10 or 15 or 20 percent, but they're not going to we're not going to have an extended bear market. It's not going to crash, which is unhealthy because it means that you know, they're not looking at valuations. They're not, you know, they're not looking, they're not making proper investment decisions saying, is the, you know, is this, you know, is the discounted cash flow on this thing really worth it? And so it, the, you know, financial markets need some sort of discipline, which is going back to my Howard Marks example. Um, In absence of that, we get, you know, we get this kind of, you know, inflated asset values across the, across the spectrum, which I don't think is good. Yeah. And, and this is kind of exactly why I thought your book was so important and relevant for Bitcoiners, because it's this idea that like as the moneyness increases over time, the, the market has like no ability to determine the correct price of anything when the unit of account, basically the units of, of account are so broken that there, there's just no way to properly calibrate anything. And we kind of end up in this place where we are today, where it's like, how much of the economic activity is even real and how much of it is sort of this mir- mirage and like the, the longer it goes on, the ratio of, of real and fake gets more and more out of whack. And uh, this is another kind of Bitcoin idea where it could possibly, or 
you know, a lot of Bitcoiners think that it, it would be fixed by the one thing just never changing is the amount of money. So then every all the other markets need to sort of calibrate around this sort of fixed point in financial space instead of everything trying to measure against things that are all expanding at various rates. It's like all these different galaxies that are like move, moving and away from each other at different speeds. Yeah, I, I, I'm sympathetic to to the idea of, um, as I said, needing to have a essentially a monetary system that's that's modern, that's a, that's a, that's that's kind of thoughtfully put together as opposed to one that it's really just been reactive. Um, which you know, again, I'm not blaming central bankers in in the sense of you know they they're they're humans and they've been dealt a problem and they they're 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 dealing with it but i do feel like we've got enough experience now enough data now to know that um you know we we need a system that's adapted to the to the way the world works in you know in the in our current century not the way the world worked you know in 1907 or um you know when the that the big panic happened that triggered the creation of the fed so that's all i'm i'm saying is it's kind of ad hoc system ha- hasn't uh you know it's kind of reached reached the end i think so whether or not it's bitcoin or some other system um I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that's you know if you and i get together in 10 years we'll be we'll be talking about a financial system that's quite different from what we've got now yeah it's gonna be interesting to see you know as we're as we're still kind of in that mindset of up only it's like inflation's got to the point where it's a very loud signal of complaint about the rate of inflation but the same people complaining about inflation still want the asset prices to rise, you know, for that part to resume. And uh, no, but having to understand that those two things are intrinsically linked and go hand in hand. Like if we want to have prices of everything going up forever, that means the prices of like tomatoes and gasoline and your consumable items are, are going to go with it. And when, so it's hard to imagine that system continuing on for another 50 or 80 or however many years. And it's it's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out. Yeah, I I, I completely agree. So yeah, I, I I think the central issue now, as like I've discussed, is you know the, in the we start the book by saying that why are central why do central bank you know seem all powerful? Why are their utterances like the the word of God? And it's because they've they have seemingly had this power to. Uh, or they have had this power to affect markets uh, through their intervention. Yet each intervention sows the seeds for ultimately a complete change in in the system. In other words, show, sows the seed for their um, losing power, right? Because it encourages carry, it encourages fragility. It means bigger intervention the next time, um, which ultimately feeds into higher inflation. So. It's all heading toward a, a, a world where their actual power is completely eroded, but along the way they seem all powerful. So it has this kind of uh, paradox that um, you know I think ultimately you know something can't go on; it won't. And I think that's just the situation that that we're in. So, how far along are we in the second book? Is there uh, can we can we expect it to uh, come out before? <laughs> Before this, whatever is happening in the system that we're talking about, or where I'd say we're about a third of the way through. We 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 kind of want to do. We want to expand on some of the ideas in the first book. You know, just be be more clear about what we mean by it. So that that part is done, and then we've kind of sketched out a 
you know, possible routes for um, what a mo- what a post carry monetary system would look like. But that's that's still very speculative. We haven't really concluded what what we what we think should happen. So it's more kind of a thought a kind of a thought exercise and say, well, if we did this, what would that lead to? Um, and ultimately, I think it comes down to sort of what you and I just discussed, whether can you have a system with a central bank? Can you have a system where the central bank sets the short-term interest rate um, to try to manage the business cycle and has some type of lender of last resort function? Can you have those two things without reinitiating the process that we've just discussed, this kind of ratchet effect where markets grow increasingly fragile over time? So um, that, that's, what, that's what we're wrestling with. And hopefully we'll, <laughs> we'll come up with an interesting answer. Yeah, it, they are massively important questions that I think uh, very, a lot of people should be should be interested in. The book is Rise of Carry. I, I just can't recommend strongly enough that uh, if you're listening to check it out. Thank you again for coming on, Kevin. If our listeners wanted to find you elsewhere, is there uh, somewhere we can steer them to? First of all, Scott, thank thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate the not only a chance to talk to you, but just the fact that you know you you've read the book, thought about it. That re- that really means a lot. So I appreciate that. Um, there's a riseofcarry.com website, which has an overview of the book. But if you want to follow my kind of day-to-day work, it's I have a Substack account that's called The Ideas Lab. Um, it's under my name. And I actually have a podcast myself where I interview people who've written new books, and then I write about their concepts, and I also write about my own ideas. And that comes out kind of maybe once or twice a month. So it, what I try to do there is take important thinking on the current state and the future state of markets and just distill it down into eight or 900 words. So it's their short essays. I try to translate it into terms that pretty much everyone can understand. And um, it's been a fun exercise for me. It keeps me on top of really new, fresh thinking. And I think a lot of your listeners would enjoy it. So that's called the Ideas Lab on, on Substack. If you just kind of search for me you know, on the Substack network, you, you'll find it. Cool. Yeah, you, have a, you have a great way of communicating your ideas very clearly and helping uh, the layperson sort of under, understand them regardless of uh, your level of uh, technical expertise and background, for sure. All right. Uh, All right. Thank you again. We'll love to, uh, we'll have to have you back on at some point in the future and uh, eagerly look forward to the sequel to your book. <laughs> Thanks, guys. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Block Reward. We're trying to do something different here, creating accessible conversations meant for people who aren't obsessed with Bitcoin. If you found this episode informative and engaging, hit that subscribe button to make sure you stay updated with future episodes. Your feedback matters. We'd greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to share your reviews and help us with our goal of creating Bitcoin content that is simple and easy to understand. Bitcoin has an important role to play in the future of finance. It will change the way we save, spend, and invest. Discover why Bitcoin offers a game-changing opportunity for forward-thinking employers by visiting BlockRewards.ca. BlockRewards' mission is helping Canadian employers implement strategies for integrating Bitcoin into compensation and benefits. Supercharge your recruitment and retention strategies and help your team members plan for the rising cost of living by rewarding their work with the hardest money ever invented. Special thanks to our top sponsor, Paramount Employee Benefits Consulting, Canada's only Bitcoin-forward benefits and pension advisory. For more information, find them at ParamountBenefits.ca. Big shout out to Podigy, our production team that makes all this possible, and VMX Escape for producing our music. Bitcoin is an expansive and dense topic many people walk away from early. 
to Bitcoin enthusiasts looking for that podcast they can share with friends, family, and colleagues, one they'll actually listen to. We hope that is us. The content of these conversations is meant to be provided for information purposes only. Nothing here is investment advice. Bitcoin is a big topic. Be sure to do your own research before making any personal financial decisions. Thanks for listening. 